Hello, and welcome to the Pediatric Anesthesia Journal's featured article of the month podcast for September 2022. These monthly podcasts are published on the journal's website, and you can also subscribe to them via iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Podbean. My name is Dr. Devnath Chatterjee, and I'm one of the journal's education editors. This month's featured article is entitled, Video Langoscopes versus Direct Langoscopes in Children. Ranking Systematic Review with Network Meta-Analyses of Randomized Control Trials. Wow, that's a mouthful. It is my distinct pleasure to welcome the first author of this article, Dr. Clestinus Carvalho, who is a professor of anesthesiology at the Federal University of Campina Grande in Brazil, and the senior author, Dr. Jamie Payton, a pediatric anesthesiologist at Boston Children's Hospital. Welcome to this podcast, and thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Dave. It's a pleasure to join you and, and James for the discussion. Yes, thank you, Dave. It's great to, uh, to be able to chat to you today. Perfect. Let's get started. So it is well known that video langoscopes improve glottic view and intubation attempts in adults. Data from the Pediatric Difficult Intubation Registry and the recent VISI trial showed a higher success rate with video langoscopy in infants. What prompted you and your team to conduct this analysis? Well, Dave, uh, what basically made us go for this incursion were the uncertainties around the actual benefit of using video laryngoscopes for the pediatric population. While we, we have strong evidence that video laryngoscopes are in fact beneficial for adults, with by the way, two recent systematic reviews being published earlier this year, and show improvement in a, in a range of different outcomes for adults with video laryngoscopes. But for the pediatric population, uh, the evidence wasn't that clear. So, okay, we are aware there are some well-designed uh, well trials, such as a VISI trial, for example, supporting the, the use of video laryngoscope for the pediatric population. But the problem is that those, uh, those findings were not consistent throughout the studies. And we could see those inconsistencies when looking at those previous published systematic reviews. So, when you have a closer look at the systematic reviews, what we could see was a large variability among the studies results. And that's what we call heterogeneity. When the problem with heterogeneity is that the heterogeneity itself tends to spoil the analysis and, and impair our inferences. And that's why it's, it's important to, to try to deal better with, with heterogeneity uh, in order to have more useful and, and reliable results, you know? And in this context, an issue that might explain at least part of this heterogeneity is the fact that this pairwise meta-analysis, we're pulling together a range of different video laryngoscopes as a single interventions. But we know that video laryngoscopes, different video laryngoscopes, have differential uh, performances under certain circumstances. So this way, uh, there's a chance that this pairwise meta-analysis, we're pulling together a device with good and poor performance in a manner that the average performance of video laryngoscope could, couldn't get significantly different from direct laryngoscopes. And that's why we decided to go for a network meta-analysis so we could uh, assess each individual video laryngoscope as a single intervention. So for those of us who didn't pay attention to statistics classes in medical school, what exactly is a network meta-analysis of randomized control trials? That's an interesting question, Dave. Maybe in the current days when we see so many different a network meta-analysis being published in, in scientific journals across the globe. So to try to put it simply, uh, network meta-analysis is a relatively new approach to summarize data 
usually from systematically retrieved studies, when we aim to compare more than two interventions. So if you have a simple pair of interventions to be compared, we make use of a set of methods and techniques that we call uh, pairwise meta-analysis. But if instead we have more than two interventions, three or more, we apply a, a set of methods uh, encompassed by what we call a network meta-analysis. So as the, the name itself suggests, the, the network meta-analysis creates a network of comparisons between multiple interventions and draw comparative results, not only from direct uh, comparison, but also from that indirect comparison. And that's why we see discussions about direct and indirect evidence when reading reports uh, of network meta-analysis. So let me try to make it simple by giving a, a hypothetical example. Let's say we have OEM to compare three interventions and let's name them interventions A, interventions B, and intervention C. Uh, and let's also say we have a, a direct comparisons between the intervention A and intervention B, showing that A uh, is twice as good as B for a given outcome under certain circumstances. Let's also say we have another direct comparisons between the intervention B and the intervention C. And this comparison shows that B is twice as good as the intervention C for the same outcome as before and under similar circumstances. So given this scenario, we might indirectly infer that the intervention A is four times as good as the intervention C, since we have A twice as good as B and B twice as good as C. So uh, that's what a network meta-analysis does. Like, uh, it brings together and creates a network of comparisons between multiple interventions and draw uh, uh, its results from direct and indirect uh, comparisons. That makes sense. So going back to your study, how many uh, studies were included in the final analysis and what outcomes were you looking at? Uh, we have included 46 studies in total in the systematic review. However, uh, uh, readers should be mindful that this is the total number of included studies and does not represent the number of studies in each of our included uh, analysis. So I highlight the need for paying attention to the number of included studies in each analysis across the different assessed outcomes. Regarding the outcomes we were looking at, uh, we focused mainly on the risk of failed intubation attempts, and we defined this as our main outcome. And we did so because we know that fewer intubation attempts are associated with, with improved outcomes. But we did not only evaluate the risk of first intubation attempts. We went further and investigated the effects of the evaluated devices over some other outcomes of interest, such as failing to intubation to intubate patients at second attempt or failing to intubation to intubate patients at all. And we also assessed the time taking to achieve tracker intubations, uh, as it seems some physicians suspect video laryngoscope might delay tracker intubation. In addition, we compare the device's performances for improved blood review and their effects over intubation-related complications, such as hypoxemia, bradycardia, and some other minor and major complications. So I think we should discuss some of the outcomes of your analysis. So what were the results of your study? I would be saying that uh, our findings for those three outcomes, failed first intubation attempt, risk of major complications and, and time for intubation uh, might be considered or would represent the abstract of our entire work. So I'm really happy to discuss this. Well, one important point that uh, we should realize is that we could find more relevant and significant results and differences when looking at those younger children than when looking at the entire range of ages. And it may be due to the high frequency of discrete arrays in, in neonates and infants. But it doesn't absolutely mean that video laryngoscopes are not beneficial for older children. On the contrary, 
although the, the, the evidence is not yet crystal clear for some outcomes in the older children, but we found significant reduction for the risk of major complications, for example, uh, with 90 studies, including nearly 1,400 patients and no heterogeneity in place. We also found other, some other individual devices present significant benefit for different outcomes compared to the direct cardioscopes. But for neonates and infants, in fact, the difference were more embraced you know, and included lower risk of failed first intubation attempt, lower risk of major complications and equivalent time, time for intubation. And here's important to highlight that the total range of mean difference of time to intubation in neonates and infants among the seven included studies varied from minus 11 to 5.5 seconds. And it means that even in the, the study with the worst performance of video laryngoscopes, the delay was of only 5.5 seconds. Therefore, we, we consider that under the light of our results, we might infer equivalent time to intubation between video laryngoscopes and direct laryngoscopes in both young and older children, as well as reduce risk of major complications such as hypoxemia, for example, by using video laryngoscopes in, in children of any age. But regarding the chances, of succeeding to intubate patient at first attempt, the current evidence only allow us to infer benefit of video laryngoscope for those younger children, such as neonates and infants. Perfect. So moving on to some practical advice here. You, you mentioned in your paper that the benefits of video laryngoscopy are more evident in neonates and infants. So Jamie, should video laryngoscopy be the standard of care for the first intubation attempt in neonates and small infants? Uh, that's a question we get asked a lot, and I can give you a really short answer, which is yes, and then I'll give you the much more nuanced and long answer, which is we have to be careful about the language that we're using. Simply referring to everything as video laryngoscopy, um, as we've discussed, you know, it's not a single intervention. There are multiple different types of laryngoscope blades, and we're really talking about video enabled laryngoscopes and we have to really think about how we are using these devices we're not just talking about a hyperangulated video laryngoscope that can only look around um, the corner of an airway and not give us any opportunity to directly expose the larynx in infants and neonates uh, we, we noticed, first of all, with data from the Paediatric Difficult Intubation Registry, that we were having a lot more complications and problems with smaller babies. Essentially, the smaller the child, the higher the risk of complications associated with airway management if they were difficult to intubate, which prompted us uh, to perform the VISI trial, which was a randomized control trial comparing indirect video laryngoscopy using a Miller blade video laryngoscope with traditional Miller blade direct laryngoscopy. That study uh, was published in The Lancet uh, last year, two years ago now, and demonstrated um, higher first attempt success rates and less major complications, especially esophageal intubation, uh, when video laryngoscopy was used. So we do have a well-designed randomized control trial demonstrating that video laryngoscopy using a Miller blade laryngoscope um, is uh, safer um, for tracheal intubation in infants who weigh less than 6.5 kilos, which was the medium weight we had there. However, direct laryngoscopy remains a very safe technique in the, the majority of airways in children. Uh, it's the question John Fiaggio always asks is, you know, is it good because it's old? Is it old because it's good? It is something, the technique itself of traditional direct laryngoscopy 
um, usually has a success rate in infants and neonates around about 80% um, for first attempt intubation in our residents' hands. We would like to increase that. So using a video-enabled laryngoscope with a standard blade, a Miller blade, to perform direct laryngoscopy. So not looking at the screen, having the trainee, for example, performing direct laryngoscopy with a device that has a video camera on it, which is a video laryngoscope, um, is a very valid technique and something that we do a lot of. And it is not the same as performing an indirect laryngoscopy, um, in particular, hyperangulated um, uh, video laryngoscopy. So I'm not sure if I've waffled too much, Dave, but I'm, what I'm trying to get across is that it depends on the tool that you have, the laryngoscope you have, and how you use it. And certainly, um, it is safer and it's better for patients to use a standard blade video laryngoscope to intubate infants and neonates. One of the concerns I hear is that using video laryngoscopy for all intubation attempts will result in our trainees and some of us losing our skills in direct laryngoscopy. So how can we incorporate this new technology, video laryngoscopy, into our daily practice? Video laryngoscopy and direct laryngoscopy are not mutually exclusive. As I said, performing direct laryngoscopy um, with a standard blade, a Mac blade or a Miller blade, utilizing 21st century equipment, so a video-enabled laryngoscope system such as the CMAC Miller One blade um, or the, the GlideScope Miller One blade, is very straightforward, very easy. The technique is exactly the same as performing direct laryngoscopy with a traditional laryngoscope. The advantages are, are huge in, in my mind. When you have, when you're teaching in particular, and you're teaching your residents to intubate infants and neonates, and some of them have never intubated them before, having them perform direct laryngoscopy using a system that allows the teacher to see where the tip of the laryngoscope blade is, to identify the midline anatomical structures, which often um, the trainees themselves don't know um, what they're looking at, and they will describe what they think is a larynx, but on the screen, you can actually clearly see um, that they are looking at the esophagus. They've just managed to stretch it a bit. So the sides look a little bit white and it looks like a, a larynx. You can help them with their technique. You can actually then, once they've got their view, their clear view at direct laryngoscopy, and they don't need to be looking at the screen at all. They can still be looking down into the mouth of the, of the baby. When they intubate, you actually see the tube pass through the vocal cords. So you can see, and everybody in the room can see, that the tube has gone into the correct place pretty much immediately. I think that my way of teaching people how to perform direct laryngoscopies, particularly in infants and neonates, has improved by using um, video-enabled laryngoscopes uh, that allow me to see exactly where the blade is and to see really what anatomical structures that the trainees are looking at. I think when you combine it with the sort of the, the triad I use to teach now is I utilize muscle relaxation to optimize intubating conditions for the trainee. And I use supplemental oxygen uh, via nasal cannula, um, which lengthens the time they have to perform the laryngoscopy. Um, now, I very rarely have any issues with desaturations intubating infants and neonates because that combination of three different things, video laryngoscopes, apneic oxygenation, muscle relaxation, gives me ideal intubating conditions and my trainees um, are intubating babies on the first attempt far more regularly than they were before. Um, so 
I disagree with the concept that it will worsen skills with direct laryngoscopy because they are not mutually exclusive techniques. I think it will improve the way we perform direct laryngoscopy. And ultimately, if you have an unanticipated difficult laryngoscopy, you have the option to look at the screen and to get a, a second perspective and potentially intubate during that laryngoscopy. Whereas before we would have had to stop, come out and mass ventilate. Those are some excellent points. So before we wrap up this discussion, any concluding remarks or next steps? So I, I think we are in the middle of a um, paradigm shift in the way that we are managing airways. And the technology that we had always regularly used from the 1930s is being phased out in both adults and children in favor of 21st century technology. The techniques can be the same, as I said, direct laryngoscopy is still perfectly acceptable technique, but it's really the equipment that we are performing it with um, is the thing that is changing. Um, and there are obviously issues with that surrounding cost, availability, reliability, um, and certainly in pediatrics, it's also worth noting that there is currently uh, no fully comprehensive single system that will enable us to perform a standard blade video laryngoscopy hyperangulated blade video laryngoscopy um, and flexible nasal endoscopy uh, in all the sizes that we would require from, from neonates all the way up to, to full-grown adults. So the difficulties we have is that the equipment that I'm heavily advocating for us to begin to use on a very regular basis is not, uh, a single system does not exist. We need to have at the moment, for example, in my institution, we have uh, the Storz CMAX system and the Verathon Glidescope system for video laryngoscopy, which enables us to have a fully comprehensive set of blades for all possible sizes. It also enables us to have flexible bronchoscopic options, apart from the very smallest patients where we, we, we have to use, uh, we use an Olympus 2.2 millimeter scope. So to have a comprehensive set of airway management options at the moment, we, you, we need three separate systems. Um, which is in itself not a great thing. But people need to know the equipment they're using, they need to know the limitations of the equipment, um, and they need to stop thinking about uh, direct laryngoscopy and video laryngoscopy as being mutually exclusive techniques. Thank you so much, Clestinus and Jamie. This has been a lovely discussion. We appreciate you taking the time to chat, and we look forward to more contributions from you and your team. Thank you, Dave. That wraps up our featured article of the month podcast for September 2022. This article will be available for free on the journal's website soon. Follow us on Twitter on at PD Anesthesia. Please join us for next month's featured article of the month podcast. Until then, cheers.